Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, I'm going to start with this. I have a confession to make. Oh, no. What did you do now, Richard? Well, this is about masks. Back in late January, I flew to Melbourne, Australia, and I remember that at the airport arrivals area, most of the people coming on flights from Asia were wearing masks. And I somewhat smugly thought to myself, that's kind of weird. I mean, and and now I realize that that they were right. I was wrong to judge them, that that wearing a mask indoors when you might infect others is an act of kindness. So my view of of wearing masks subsequently has changed. In your defense, Richard, I mean, you were following the advice of WHO, the World Health Organization, and other experts who at the time were telling us all that we really didn't need to wear to wear masks. Their advice changed. And what's amazing to me is how quickly everyone in the U.S. has shifted gears and started wearing masks and our standards have really turned on a dime. And that leads us to the subject of this podcast, Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels, Katherine Sanderson. Yeah, so moral rebels seem to be able to, and in fact, comfortable with standing up and calling out bad behavior, even if they're in a group setting in which other people are staying silent, even when it might feel terribly hard to do so for the rest of us. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So many of our routines, our habits have changed because of this pandemic. And I think that makes it a good time to question things, even really basic things. You know, we can look at our values and our way of life in ways that we don't do so much in normal times. What will normal times look like in the future? We have no idea, but we do know that the pandemic is kind of a moving target and that many people have responded fast. Our guest is psychology professor Katherine Sanderson of Amherst College in Massachusetts. She's the author of the new book, Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. Catherine joined us from Hadley, Massachusetts on How Do We Fix It? And during this interview, <laughs> in this time of, of texting and social messaging, you'll probably hear a few pings from Catherine's phone. Catherine, welcome to our remote studio at How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for the invitation to talk. Catherine, I'm fascinated about how this pandemic that we're now all living through has turned all of us from bystanders to participants. Many of us have changed our habits very quickly, haven't we? 
absolutely. And and I think it was also helped early on by some leaders. I know people in the sports world made sort of videos uh, that went around on Twitter and social media saying, hey, we got to socially distance and this is what I'm doing and we've got to be safe. Celebrities also being very forward about saying this is really important. And I think by all accounts, that really made a difference. What surprised you the most about this? It surprised me the most about the extent to which the norms change. So on Monday, March 9th in the evening, we got an email from the president, students, faculty, staff, and it said, the semester is moving online. Pack up, turn the keys, go home. You're not coming back. So initially it was, well, we're all going to go home, but faculty are going to go in and you know teach in their office. Then four days later, it was, no, pack up your stuff. You know, our college is closed. You can't actually go into your office anymore. So initially it became, uh, we're just going to restrict travel or we're going to do other things. And then all of a sudden it became this escalation. I mean, two weeks ago it was, no, 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 there's no need to wear masks unless you're showing symptoms. And now it's really everyone should be wearing a mask when they are in a grocery store. So all of those are just major shifts and they're major shifts that have happened in some cases within days, but in many cases within weeks. It, it, it still is surprising to me how social norms have changed uh, so quickly. Um, what are some ways that we can change norms to improve human behavior at a time like this? This is research from a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, is that it actually takes about 25% of the people in a given community to make a shift in norms. And once you have that number of people, you actually create a tipping point and therefore other people follow. So what's been interesting that we've actually seen is that different states rolled out the shift at different times. Some were very early, some tended to be a little bit later. And what you're seeing is sort of this gradual tipping point shifting, almost like dominoes state by state. A lot of your work focuses on how social groups influence our sense of what the morally correct behavior is. Do you think social media helped accelerate this acceptance of just how bad this could get and and why we needed to change behavior quickly? Absolutely. One, it really did allow social norms to be transmitted very, very quickly. But the other thing which social media, of course, is doing is also really keeping people connected right now. So people are talking about how I'm FaceTiming with my grandchild and, you know, I'm teaching on Zoom and, you know, so on. So it's a really interesting example of sort of the benefits that we may not have anticipated that really have come out of social norms. Catherine, your latest book is called Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels, something that happened when your son started his first year in college was behind your decision to write the book. Tell us about what happened. So my oldest child, Andrew, started college a few years ago. And about two weeks in, I got a call from him, his first phone call home, and his voice was breaking. And he said, a kid died in my dorm last night. And the story was so very, very familiar to all of us. A student is drinking on a Saturday night with friends. He falls, he hits his head. And then a group of kids around him, his friends, his roommate, 
were really worried about him. They wanted him to be safe. So they watched him to make sure he was still breathing. They strapped a backpack around his shoulders to make sure he didn't roll onto his back, vomit, and then choke to death. And what they did was they watched over him for 19 hours before they called 911. And when they finally called to get help, it was too late. And these were good kids. These were nice kids. These were kids who cared about their friend. And yet they didn't step up and act. And so that was really the start of my idea for this book was trying to understand and unpack what led these nice kids to not call 911 immediately. And so you dug into all the social science research and also some of the the brain research using fMRIs to analyze what's going on in the brain when people are confronted with different kinds of moral decisions. What did you find? I just immersed myself in uh, the latest research, as you said, in neuroscience, but also, frankly, in historical examples. So I spent a lot of time, you know, Sorry, if you could just re- repeat that. Sorry, I think my daughter. I think my daughter got a text. I literally. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that was it. I also immersed myself in both present-day political examples and historical examples. So I read books about the Holocaust and Nazi Germany. I read books about the civil rights movement in the United States and the extent to which. Lots of people didn't step up when there were lynchings on the courthouse lawn. And I really wanted to understand what's happening at a very, very broad level, because what's clear is that this example of these college students not stepping up in a dorm room, that's one specific and vivid example. But the psychological factors that led to their inaction are exactly the same as the psychological factors that underlie inaction in all sorts of different situations. You say that one reason why bullying... Sorry, I'm not sure where the I don't know how to turn her off. (laughs) And I'm going to... Here, you need to stop texting... Um, and you know we're putting all of this in the podcast, right? Absolutely. All of this back and forth. I've been hardened by listening to like NPR or, you know, the daily podcast, and you'll hear like dogs barking. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't I don't even know where we were, but go no, ahead. No, it's okay. It's okay. Fine. You say that one reason why bullying, sexual assaults, political corruption, and corporate crime all flourish is because of the failure of good people to stand up and do the right thing. So let's look at an example. Well, I mean, honestly, there are so many. As I was writing this manuscript, the grand jury report from Pennsylvania and the Catholic priests was released, illustrating lots of people in a religious community were silent as truly abhorrent behavior was being done to little kids. The Harvey Weinstein stuff came out. And I remember a quote from an interview in the New York Times with Quentin Tarantino. And they said, should you have done something? Did you know what was going on? And here was Quentin Tarantino's quote. I knew enough to do more than I did. Now, that's a clear example of the Olympic gymnastics doctor, Eric Nassar. That all came out as I was writing this book. An example of lots of people knew for years what was going on and didn't speak up. And so what's been interesting to me working on this book and then now doing publicity for the book is that every time I talk about this, people say to me, oh, 
I was in a hotel ballroom and this thing happened. I was in the stands of a hockey game and I should have said something, or I was at an airport and I saw this thing, that it's really a universal experience that we've all had. You really get into the way that people take their cues from everyone else around them. You know, if they're on a subway car and something bad is happening, but no one else seems to be engaging or doing anything about it, you might doubt your own perception that it's bad, or you might be more reluctant to to get up and take action. It's hard to break that sense that that everyone else thinks this thing is okay. That phenomenon of looking at other people's behavior and our own, and even when that behavior is publicly the same, so sitting on a subway car and you see something and you don't act and no one acts, you see that your behavior, not acting, is the same as everybody else's behavior, not acting. We all tend to assume that our behavior, our inaction, is driven by different factors than other people's inaction, even when the behavior is the same. So we say, well, I'd really like to speak up, but I don't want to be embarrassed and you know, make a fool of myself and be seen as overreacting. So that's why I'm not speaking up. But then you look at other people who are also not speaking up and you don't say, oh, I bet they're embarrassed. You say, oh, they understand that nothing's going on or that there's no problem. You call people who do stand up to wrongdoing moral rebels. What do you mean by that term? Yeah. So moral rebels seem to be able to, and in fact, comfortable with standing up and calling out bad behavior, even if they're in a group setting in which other people are staying silent. So moral rebels seem to be willing to stand up, even when it might feel terribly hard to do so for the rest of us. And what gives them that that courage, that strength of character? So there are a few different traits that they seem to have in common. One they seem to be pretty high in empathy. So they're very good to sort of put themselves in somebody else's shoes. Another factor is they seem to not really be socially inhibited. Um, I think the third trait is they seem to be pretty self-confident. So they actually feel their opinion is worthwhile, their opinion is valuable, and they therefore should, in fact, say something in that situation. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with psychology professor Katherine Sanderson about her new book, which is called Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. More in a moment. Oh, that was, Perfect a, timing. That was, that was good timing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before the break, we were talking about what gives people the courage to stand up and 
and defy the rest of the crowd, the rest of the group, and and really call attention to something wrong that's going on. But you, in the book, you also talk about the opposite phenomenon. You use a really interesting term, social loafing. What does that mean? So we've all experienced social loafing, even if we don't know this term. So social loafing is basically our tendency to withdraw effort when we're in a group setting. It's why restaurants impose a mandatory 15, 18, 20% tip on group parties, because invariably everybody says, well, you know, I don't have to really tip my fair share because these other people can, you know, make up the amount that I'm not contributing. Let's look at some ways that that people can step up. Why do people who have some kind of specialized training, such as first aid or or CPR, why are they more likely to intervene in, in, in the face of danger? So that basically helps break this sense of diffusion of responsibility. So if you're on a plane and somebody's having an emergency, many of us might say, oh, you know, I recognize, but I don't have the skill set. But if somebody is a doctor or even somebody who's a medic or trained in CPR first aid, they in fact do have the skills. And that means they can't simply socially loaf and say, well, all of us could step up and help because the reality is they're a better person to step up and help than the rest of us. And so that tends to break this social inhibition. So should we go out and get trained at something? We should. No, no. Well, and and the reality is it doesn't even have to be, you know, going to medical school. Having training in CPR or first aid helps. I describe an example in the book of somebody who went through first aid training as part of becoming a Boy Scout leader. And they, in fact, then stepped up in a pretty violent altercation on a public street in London. So having any kind of specialized training, in fact, gives us more confidence that we can step up and it should increase our willingness to do so, even in a group setting. You also talk about some of the things that can help people step up in less violent, but in some ways, no less troubling situations, such as, you know, people are expressing racist or sexist jokes or other attitudes in the workplace or in other uh, other settings, ways to challenge that, ways to diffuse that. What are some of those techniques? There are different techniques that are useful in different situations. So let's take the example of somebody saying something sexist or racist in a meeting. One possibility is to show empathy for that person and say, listen, you know, I know you really didn't mean anything, but, you know, my brother is gay, you know, or, you know, my um, uncle experienced sexual assault. And it's really important, therefore, for you not to make jokes about it. And so that's a way in which personalizing the example may make the person more sensitive to it without saying something like, you're a jerk and I'm going to report you or we're not friends or whatever. I also give another technique, which is using humor. So somebody says, you know, oh, I could never vote for, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, women are too emotional to be president. And they might be totally serious, but you could say, ha ha, you know, I know you're joking. I know you don't really believe that, but you know, some people really do believe it. So really you shouldn't say it because people might not understand that you're just being sarcastic. And so having a sense of different skills and strategies that you can use in a particular setting, I'm hoping will give people the opportunity to step up at the moment instead of rehearsing the perfect line 24 hours later when it really isn't going to be helpful. Catherine, what about in this current moment? Most of us have been to the grocery store and someone is, has gotten too close to us in the shopping aisle or in the checkout line. What do you say there? 
So I think it's really important in this time to be able to clearly communicate that this is not okay. So I think saying something like, hey, you know, let's remember social distancing or, hey, you know, I have a family member at home who's, you know, quite old or is immunocompromised. So again, making the person not feel bad about themselves, but also clearly conveying what is the norm. As my college students were leaving campus, many of them came by to say goodbye. um, And many of them at the end would reach over to either shake my hand or to hug me. And for every single one of them, I said, hey, you know, we're practicing social distancing. Let's do a wave or let's do a pat our chest or let's do an elbow bump. And it was very clear that all of them just didn't know what to do. And then I really felt a responsibility as the adult to kind of say, not going to hug you goodbye, you know, not going to shake hands. We need to show what is appropriate to do. Do you think that in a moment like this, adversity can breed resilience? Absolutely. So research, for example, has shown that adversity tends to make people more compassionate, that we see lots of evidence that during difficult times, people who've undergone difficulties, they tend to become more sympathetic to other people. They tend to be more giving. And I think we've seen an outpouring of that in a variety of ways, whether it's people organizing to, you know, applaud at 7 p.m. as hospital workers change shifts in various cities. We've seen it in terms of people gathering to support local businesses or get takeout from restaurants or independent bookstores. And I think all of that is really encouraging. It's also true that adversity gives people skills in terms of coping with difficult events. So my hope is that college students will return to campus, hopefully this fall, uh, and, and be able to say, you know, I got a C on that midterm, but at least that's not as bad as not being able to go to a restaurant or go to the gym or do other things that I might, in fact, take for granted under normal circumstances. Catherine Sanderson, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. We all need more happiness and moral courage in the world these days. Absolutely. And now it is that time in the show, Richard, where we take a break and make our recommendations. Yeah, my recommendation this week is a TV show, Firing Line with Margaret Hoover. And recently she's had some terrific guests on, including uh, Mark Cuban and Scott Gottlieb. And what I like about this show is that unlike so many current affairs programs on television today, I have no idea whether Margaret is a liberal or a conservative. She just asks questions in a straightforward way. And the questions are short, they're incisive, the conversation moves fast, and I really recommend it. It's, it's on every week on public television stations, usually on Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, I actually saw both those interviews, and which is funny because one of my recommendations is to watch less news on TV. I've found it's been really nice not to turn the TV on as much. Normally when I'm making lunch or dinner, I've got it on in the background, usually some cable news channel. And it's been too much lately. And so if I do want to put it on the TV, more often I'm going to toggle over to the Turner Classic Movies channel. I watched most of Ben-Hur the other day. I guarantee you that, that watching Chariot Races 
in ancient Rome was a lot better than watching people argue about the pandemic. Yeah, way too much of, of cable television especially is just aimed at inflaming people and, and making them feel miserable in the end rather than empowered or, or giving them something that's of value. Richard, I think that Catherine's book really hits on something I've been interested in my whole life, which is how do people form moral judgments? You know, I was a philosophy major in college, and I'm still interested in these questions. And I think that her focus on the role of the group dynamics, the group think in, in how we make moral judgments, and really many judgments, is so crucial. It's not just do we call out bad behavior? Do we step up to do the right thing? Sometimes it's also, do we see a problem emerging? Do we see a disaster coming down the pike? You see a lot of failures in the run-up to this pandemic among people who meant well, but they had a hard time visualizing how bad it could be. And then they looked around and nobody else seemed all that worried either. So almost everyone, with a few small exceptions, underestimated how bad this thing could get. Catherine's interview is also repeating some themes in our shows. For instance, uh, Claire Kane Miller, who talked about how people with training are more likely to step up and point out uh, incidents of sexual harassment at work. And then the theme of how do we change people's minds? Uh, we had uh, several guests discuss that in, in, in recent months. So, uh, yeah, this is very much a home turf for us. It's very easy in these situations to say like, well, you just have to do the right thing. You just have to be a better person. But in the moment, that's not always so obvious to people or they don't know how to get there. They don't have the tools. So that's why the training's important. And that's why she talks about the small steps that help get people towards the right answer. Or if you're challenging somebody who's saying something that's offensive to people, you don't have to stand up and say, I accuse you of being a horrible racist. That's not necessarily going to help. You might start gently. You might start sympathetically and try to defuse the situation before it, it, it gets worse. And that might be both easier for you and, and be more likely to solve the problem. Now, small steps are often a better way to help people get to the right destination. If you make the steps too big, people might not take them. And two final thoughts. Uh, one, that those small steps may make you feel better as you're doing them. And two, when Catherine said adversity can breed resilience. I, I love that thought. And I guess we'll end with it. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Catherine no, she, no, it's not. <laughs> Sorry, Miranda. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check out our website at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.